0: the radio misfits podcast network hello everyone and welcome to planted with sarah i'm sarah pion your host and today we have christina depacci who is the ceo of paradiso which is one of the largest independent craft cannabis farms in california christina thanks so much for being here today i'm really excited to have you on the show
1: My God! Thank you for having me. It's um, I'm excited for the conversation.
0: Well, one thing I always like to ask of my guests before we really get into like the meat of what you do is, what if 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 you if you're comfortable answering this, what was your first experience with cannabis? Is the first question, and the second question is, what drew you to working in cannabis? What was your trajectory?
1: That's a great question. Um, My first experience with cannabis was definitely consuming it. Um, And it was filled with mystery and intrigue and not knowing how it was supposed to make you feel. I don't think I knew how to smoke it. I I was really confused on how to roll something. Um, And I think I ended up smoking it out of a can. (laughs) 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 So... So that was that, but it was surrounded by friends and trying to figure it out. And, you know, I think it's pretty cute, although well, there's a lot of ignorance involved, but very cute.
0: That, that's a very, um, I think that's a very universal experience for a lot of us. It, it's like, you know, figuring it out, working with what you have, and, <laughs> and kind of wondering, well, what's this going to do?
1: Exactly. Exactly, Um, and then the second question was, "Why did I? How did I get involved in the business of it?" Yes. Yep. Um, and I would have to say, very um, easily. Um, I was. I'm from New York, and so we were. I was working with friends in New York, and I was um, kind of doing some of the associated tasks, uh, kind of around. what they refer to now as distribution. <laughs> uh-huh. um, uh, but no, I was a money lady. So I would pick up money, bring money places, things like that.
0: Oh, okay. And then what What steps took you into creating your company?
1: A decade of trial and tribulations. <laughs> um, <laughs> First, first was, you know, uh, working in New York and then um, we kind of realized how most of the product was coming from California and um, we came out to California about a decade ago, a little longer than that, um, and started growing out here in Humboldt. And then we started a delivery service out of Berkeley. Um and at that point, legalization in Colorado was happening. And so we um, we kind of took steps to be as compliant as possible at that time and kept our, our eyes open. And we were eager to continue the process of legalization. Um, and the opportunity for Monterey County came. And we were really naive on... How we, how simple we thought um, large-scale greenhouse marijuana cultivation would be, <laughs> and then six years later, here we are.
0: Wow, still doing it. <laughs> it's you know, I, I one of the things that I've noticed with companies that have survived from the two fifteen days into this new market of legalization is the foresight to be compliant to. to to start creating compliance standard practices prior to legalization so that there wasn't like the 11th hour rush.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would I think it was it's important so at least you understood and and for us it was like compliance both with just like getting a business license and what does that look like in your local jurisdiction but also you know, running proper payroll, so paying payroll taxes and making sure you have good HR. um, Things like that that we were doing since 2013 really helped us in the transition of, you know, going from maybe 20 employees to, you know, now we're at 130. Wow.
0: Um, Yeah. That's some good growth. And I I think one of the things that – people who want, aren't working in the industry or at least with like a a plant touching company sometimes they don't understand like the financial strain that there is around that like with um with taxes and you know we don't we don't run our businesses like like regular businesses the things that we can claim on taxes as a non-cannabis business are really different than we do as a cannabis business and there's a lot of um there's a lot of challenges to have a successful <laughs> cannabis touching business i remember when I, I remember being told when i was still working behind the bar at the apothecarium that you know a portion of my workday was relegated officially to the federal government is trafficking and that kind of blew my mind (laughs) and what were were some of the things that that really surprised you about like running a you know a, a business in the legal market versus the traditional market
1: everything was a surprise and a learning curve um I think with other businesses, you don't necessarily have to, you can outsource a lot of things. And and I think the, the taxes are a great example. Like, you know, any accountant can file taxes for a bookstore, you know, throughout the entire domestic United States. Like that's pretty simple, but filing taxes for a cannabis company, it's, it's very subjective and, um, exactly like you're a part of your a part of my salary is, is trafficking too <laughs> <It's gonna stay. laughs> from that. one
0: trafficker to another <laughs> yeah so
1: you know it's it, it, you have to you have to learn you have to learn to really like learning because you're gonna have to learn you have to learn everything about taxes and what's considered a cost of good versus an expense and how that works how that works with your balance sheet um your liabilities and your assets, and and you have to dive in a lot deeper. Um, And I think the other thing that was really, really surprising and still surprises me all the time is what compliance with the actual um, cannabis regulations look like and how each different agency that's either inspecting you or communicating you and reviewing your application interprets them very differently. Like our local Monterey County interprets things very differently than the Department of Food and Agriculture does. And it's, it's just like, wow, (laughs) this is crazy. We're all learning together, huh? (laughs) You know, you kind of assume that the, the regulators and the inspectors kind of would have a better sense of, what was happening or what they wanted to see happen. But the truth of it is, you know, it was, and it still is, it's a learning curve for everyone and we're all learning together. Um, And I think that was pretty surprising for
0: me. Yeah. I, that's, that's been something that, um, has been both surprising uh, for me, but also, just it's it's almost it's a it's an interesting opportunity too because we're looking at other states even when they're starting to put together their cannabis policies, and and I've said this on other episodes as well because I feel like I should just get it tattooed on my arm, but it's you know policy isn't necessarily created based on fact and knowledge it's based on, you know well people winging it right we have a lot of the, the interpretation stuff is definitely. I would put it in the winging it category, but also the state culture. And then, you know, even though we're in an era of legalization, we're seeing a lot of the laws um, and frameworks for cannabis businesses. They're still really thick with stigma, which we don't see in other industries. And I really I feel like a lot of that has to do with we need to have a greater push to be educating the people who are working in government, whether they're creating policy, or regulating, or coming in and and doing assessments, um, so that they really that everybody's on the same page and they understand the facts around it, not necessarily their fears or stigmas around cannabis products in general and growing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Until very recently, um, it felt like. Our inspectors, especially with our county, were treating us more like we were somehow on, like, probation or something, and we were, like, full criminals, and they were like, we can't trust anything that these people are saying. (laughs) And um, I definitely agree there's a lot of stigma, especially with the, the ones who are actually doing enforcement. Mm-hmm. um and there's a lot of mistrust and there's a lot of and i think it's just rooted in, in just ignorance of like what this plant is how do you grow it how do you consume it what are the products you make um and and ultimately like what are the effects too because a lot of the people are we're doing enforcement and um regulation are not necessarily
0: consuming it either um that's a, that's a really good that's point. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like even when we're looking at policy on a federal level like I it was a couple months ago we were discussing the MORE Act in a meeting and one of the things that really hit me was what was being proposed was of course, you know, with national legalization we're looking at federal taxation as well on top of what the large amounts of money that we give to the IRS every year Um, But one of the things that was mentioned was if there was product that was lost or stolen, if it can't be proved beyond a doubt that it wasn't due to negligence of the ownership or the staff, that the company would be on the hook for the taxes for those products for the government. And, And to me, that just smacked of, oh, so we're not being treated as a legitimate business. We're being treated as pot dealers that can't be trusted, but... We're also seeing all of these people in politics who a lot of them were even anti-cannabis, vehemently so, but now they want to get on the gravy train. So they want to make money off of it, but they still want to treat us like criminals.
1: That's exactly what it is. I think most regulation is set up that way, um, that it's it's beyond over-regulation. It is exhausting to operate in the space. Um, the amount of, I wouldn't call it bleeding, but it's, you know, it's like death by a thousand cuts that they inflict, that they <laughs> <laughs> And it's really overwhelming sometimes. It's like, oh my God. And I think to like go back to the main thing, it's like, we're not making money. Like we're, we're we are all, especially in California, like we're all startup companies in a startup industry that is, you know, we were, we started out with 80,000 square feet, which is about two acres, mm-hmm. two greenhouses. Now we're in about five acres of greenhouses. And there's not like, it wasn't like, oh, okay, well, let's go check out these other greenhouses who are doing this. You know, there's no, there's no, like... Um, the USDA is not like, hey, do you need help as a cannabis operator? Here are some resources. These are common pests that you're gonna have. These are how you treat it. This is how to think about it. Um, like there's there's zero support um, where most ag industries have that support, and I, we are all learning how to do it and to have a, a learning curve both in operation plus in you know compliance and what that looks like. And I think for a lot of operators you know, I think payroll is a, is a great example, but like most people didn't know how to do payroll. And yeah. it seems like very scary. And, you know, there 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 wasn't companies who were like, oh, do you need help with like just learning how to run a business basically? Like, let me try to help you. And, and so I think that there's, it just goes back to ignorance. I think there's a lot of ignorance that lawmakers have and regulators have and inspectors have but they don't they don't really totally understand what was happening before and they don't understand what's happening now and they're like they see these high revenue dollars but they're not necessarily looking at like the profit of these companies <laughs> or how many are like going out of business or you know it's just they don't really understand the struggle and right it, it seems like um uh, People are not
0: listening either. Yeah, my impression of it is that you know regulators, politicians see this as a as a financial panacea to cure all of the non cannabis woes that we have on the state, local, and federal levels. But the choices that they're making are making it exceedingly hard for small businesses to thrive. Where we really should be looking at the cannabis industry as an opportunity for people to work in an industry, have a seat at the table, it's policy, own businesses. And because of the way things are being done, we're losing more and more independent farmers. And it's creating the opportunities are there for more of the larger companies, which, you know, larger companies are always going to exist. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we should be able to have a balance between large companies and independent farmers especially when you're looking at you know flower growing and just the beautiful artisan flowers that come out of the smaller companies and and I just have seen so much despair in areas where traditionally we've had a lot of independent growers
1: yeah yeah I think there's enough space for everyone and I said this before and and I kind of liked it but part of the intrigue of why I got involved in this is like, you get to participate in creating an industry. um, And it, you know, I want to make it an industry that everyone's proud of. And I think people, lawmakers rely on assuming kind of that there's maybe more stigma with the public than there necessarily is. And so they, they include these very high taxes and like, Kind of ensure or hedge the best that these bills will pass. Um, and I feel like you don't need to include them. <laughs> just like lower, please. If you can listen to anyone. Just lower the taxes. Um, but I think that there's this industry, you know, is old and and it's ever developing. And there's market trends, and the market trends. California is the mecca of these market trends, both in product creation um but before product creation comes strains, and what's happening with the strains and the flowers and the trends that of that and i i think when you're a local or not a local but um an independent company and you're kind of more artisanally focused you're focusing more on the strains that people actually want to smoke and what's like kind of cool or popular, and and therefore then you're creating products that people actually want. And I think the larger companies, um, especially ones that are new to the industry, they don't necessarily understand that connection, um, and therefore they create products that aren't helping further educate the public and aren't further um, helping the transition of you know, getting all the consumers to kind of buy their products at dispensaries.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, I agree. I, I know, like after legalization, there were well, there were tears on both sides of the bar. Um, you know, frustration for people working in in the dispensaries because, you know, there. I mean, we be we become attached to growers and their relationships and you know products and when those go away that can be stressful but it's also stressful when you have somebody who really needs to have access to their cannabis for you know there's there are people who enjoy it and there are people who use it for relief and when you have you know somebody who's like in her 70s or 80s in tears on the other side of the bar because she can't afford what actually is going to give her relief that's really, really hard. And, 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 and a lot of like, we get, there's a lot of anger around product pricing and product availability. And one of the things, especially this year that I've been talking to people about is, you know, don't blame the producers. Don't play blame the dispensaries. We have a lot of, there's a lot of taxes that are baked into these products. Not, you know, You've got excise, you've got sales, you have all the other things that you know, the testing, all of the the different tests that you have to do, even just in the environment, um, which is good. I mean, we need to have testing. We need to make sure that products are safe, um, because you know it's like in the past, as as you've I'm sure you've seen, there have been players that haven't always been great with quality of product and things like that but you know people who are really serious about the work they are Um, but really letting people know in the public that if you're not happy with the prices and the availability of cannabis this is the reason that these things are happening is because like you said you know The government's not realizing that the stigma's not as strong with the public. There are more people who are using cannabis than ever before. And even before, there were a lot more than they could have ever known because there was a lack of self-reporting due to the war on drugs. So whenever anybody is upset about it, I always say, listen, this is your chance to let people who are making policy who depend on your votes for their jobs, that you pay taxes, you have a job, You're a functioning member of society, you use cannabis, and you vote. And I feel like working the public actually going forward and having more conversations about this and letting their lawmakers know, especially the ones that depend on our votes to actually have a job, that that kind of pressure is going to get them to revisit the way they're approaching cannabis. Yeah,
1: Yeah, that's a great point. It's a good point. Like, write to your representative. Yeah, <laughs> Let them know. Be a pot consumer and be proud. That's it. Um, but yeah, there's so many costs baked into it. It makes it... It should be a lot more affordable than it is. And that's something that I think everyone in the industry and outside of the industry struggles with.
0: Yeah. I mean, um, it, it not only should be more affordable, but it also should be where, you know, with it being affordable hand in hand, it should be sustainable for companies. And that's, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit more about independent farming and why it's important. Would you want to speak a little bit to that? Sure. Um,
1: so I think for our company, it is, like, me and the other founders, like, we're friends from childhood, and we, you know, sometimes I pinch myself, I'm like, wait, how did we end up here? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, these wonderful series of events, right? And, um, but I think what what I've learned and what I've seen throughout the, my experience in this industry is that it is, it is a very, very diverse industry. It is you know, all types of people working together to make the flow of uh, cannabis throughout, you know, domestic fifty states happen like every single year, and that's what we've seen over and over and over. And that was super appealing for me um, because it's just it's just fascinating. And there's all these like quirky people, and it's just interesting, and everyone's kind of working together in this amazing thing. And I think one of the things that being an independent farmer, is, it allows for that to kind of still be represented within the regulated community. And what you see in company, like most of the investors are you know, white males um, and they're investing in companies who are run by white males. And so when you don't have that, what I see at our farm is because the management and the, the, you know, the head of operations, you know, is is a woman. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But but what you see is a really diverse workplace and a diverse um, kind of set of ideas and it's an open space and it, people can move up very quickly and it I just it creates a different environment and a different culture within the company. And I think that that company culture is a reflection on or I like it to be a reflection on what I, you know, first got attracted to in the cannabis world. Where it's open, it's quirky, it's a bunch of different people. Um and I think it's it's just important to have
0: that represented. Yeah. One thing I've noticed, too, and it's not it's not necessarily relegated to female-run organizations, but I find it more, is the it really, like, when we're looking at what's important to these companies, I see things like sustainability and creativity. Um, you know, not necessarily, I mean, of course we're looking for products that will appeal to the public and that will sell well but it's not it's not cookie cutter there's just so much more thinking beyond what's already out there and that's that's one of the things that I really appreciate and what when you look at like sustainable practices in cannabis what are some of the things that come to mind for you
1: It's actually the opposite. It's like when I think about sustainability in cannabis, I think about how unsustainable it is. I think about how many metric tags we use. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think about how how excessive all the packaging is, um, Mm -hmm. because of both CR, uh, child resistance compliance, but also because of how much labeling is there and necessary. And it's really, it's a challenge. And I think about how how to change those things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And at our farm, we have two brands. And my background is in art and design. And I'm, like, all about the brands. I spend a lot of my time on the brands, both from packaging to um, just, like, events more merch that we're making how can we further support it? How can we be engaging with the consumer? how can and it's it's really fun and entertaining and really neat and it's a way to be expressive and we really wanted to make sure that you know our, our beautiful packaging wasn't disguising the product but that was kind of our goal to have like this product that you know any connoisseur of weed can get behind but also it has beautiful packaging and also we're from the weed industry and, and it was really kind of cool to do it. And we, we took advantage of our, our value brand, which is going to, you know, it does the the most volume for us. It's called Dovetail. And the most popular product is, you know, just an eighth of, of weed. And we, it is not, it's not cheaper. It's not expensive. Um, but we we take advantage of trying to be more sustainable by using – we use a compostable plastic called PLA. We use it both for the jar and the lid. Oh, well, that's cool. And yeah, yeah, it's really cool. And then we were like, well, let's do it across the whole entire brand and product line. And so we use um, – for the pre-rolls, they're in tins that are recyclable, and then we have a multi-pack in a tin. And the multi pack, we keep the joints fresh with a little baggie inside, and that's compostable as well. Um, and I think at some point you just have to like. It doesn't necessarily. It's it's more expensive. Most of the time to be a little bit more sustainable, but some you just have to do it. Someone's got to do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of waste in this industry, and so anything that you possibly can do. I think it's
0: important to try to do it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that you know everybody who's able to you know pitch in and push us more towards that, as we create that normalization. And I wonder too, as more people start going to sustainable package packaging, you know, thing like I've been seeing a lot of hemp pa- plastic packaging coming out now, which makes me incredibly happy. But I also look at it and I'm like, wow, that's got to be kind of expensive. But perhaps if more companies start taking that on as a practice, you know, as we know with like mass production of products, the prices start to go down. So maybe we could create something that's less expensive, but still is maintaining sustainability. Because we have a lot of work to do, and that's, I mean, <laughs> you know, when companies, you know, I'll, I'll see products and they'll have a lot of packaging, and they're like, "What do you think?" And I'm like, "Well, you know, it's it's beautiful, but." If I was behind the bar, I know that the first day that that came out, I get at least 10 questions from consumers about, am I paying for the cannabis or am I paying for the packaging?
1: (laughs) That's a great point. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think that you're exactly right. The more that people sign on and start using more sustainable options, the cheaper that they will become. Yeah. and I think another thing is because our, uh, you know, just being, we are. I, I consider us a very resourceful company. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's due to a lot of different things. But being independent, having such high taxes, you have to be very resourceful in, in your operations because the the market fluctuates with the um, the price of weed, and you know, for us, we. Our yields are up in the summer and our yields are down in the winter. Mm -hmm. And it's always like, well, how low are they going to go this year, you know? Um, (laughs) And we're constantly trying to do renovations and improvements. And I think by not having an excess of capital, you know, it actually makes us a little more sustainable because we're not blowing through any sort of... um, massive projects at the farm or anything like that. We're just like, okay, let's reuse this. And let's reuse it again. Oh, let's reuse that actually another time again. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it makes it this kind of, so being strapped for cash, I think actually helps us make it be a little bit more sustainable.
0: Yeah. Do you, how do you find when you're looking at of funding for your company has, I, I know, especially with the lack of banking, it can be really, really difficult um, and I mean, and that's in, in many ways why like a lot of Canadian companies have been finding success in the United States because in Canada, you know, it's legal across the board. So they have access to banking and therefore they're able to invest and trade and do all these things. Um, but have you found that as, as things have gone on that it's been easier to raise capital or has it been the same old, same old?
1: I would say it's trending towards being easier um I remember that two years three almost three years ago we were I was trying to get a loan from somewhere you know and it was not a bank loan and and they were, and I was telling them and I was sending them financials and I was like this is how much money we're making like please loan us money and and they were like well send me your bank records and I was like you know uh okay and our bank records had maybe five percent of the money we tried to not deposit cash because if you, it was a chase account at the time and if we deposited cash you know an excessive amount we knew our bank account would just get shut down
0: mm-hmm.
1: which happened anyway um but then at that point i really became aware that in order to get access to capital you need to have your money going through a bank account because it's it's the way that they can verify it. Nobody cares about your handwritten cash logs. (laughs) And so um, we, so graciously, we work with North Bay credit union. And so we opened an account, I think that month. And since then having a traction of, you know, most of our revenue going through a bank account, it has allowed us to, um, you know, now we have a line of credit with the spoke financial. We have, you just have a, it, it is getting easier to get access. I would say that the cost of having a bank account is excessive and the cost of our line of credit with the spoke is also excessive. It's nowhere near what if we were just like qualified for small business loans with mm-hmm. the federal government, like mm-hmm. with a normal bank, what those interest rates would be, or with that cost of having a checking account at Chase, for instance, um, but it, it's getting better. Yeah. It's definitely getting better.
0: I'll try to be optimistic with that. When you mention Chase, it just reminds me of when I was first working in the industry and I was, I was working at a dispensary, but I was also selling joints too because I, I lived in San Francisco and it's extraordinarily expensive. And, and working in a dispensary behind the bar does not pay the rent there. Um, but my landlady, she lived in Southern California and she would have... I would just deposit rent in her Chase account. And, you know, and back then everything, well, I I got paid for my dispensary job in a check in direct deposit. But my work with my pre-rolls was all in cash. So that was what really paid my rent. So I would show up with cash at the Chase bank to pay. And one day they told me I wasn't allowed since I wasn't a Chase customer that I couldn't deposit cash in somebody else's bank account because they were worried about drug trafficking money and I was like every month I put 2195 in this account it's not varying <laughs> it's rent <laughs> And it was just really crazy because I was like, you have such bigger fish to fry. Like, seriously, what's I, I think that, you know, banking is just a really it's a really interesting thing. It's a it's a huge roadblock for people. And, you know, between that and the way we're able to get our messaging out, even like through social media and how I keep seeing people with their Instagram accounts and their Facebook accounts getting shut down and we're so limited in how we get our messaging out to the public. Um, it's just really frustrating because not only does it, it makes it hard to be able to, you know, focus on you know, brands and, and their footprint in the industry, but it also makes it really hard to educate people, to reduce stigma, to keep people safe, to create, you know, safe access. And it's like, there's a lot of things that are in the way due to stigma that are really like, I just feel like it it it's it's people shooting themselves in the foot because it's not it's it's just not constructive and and we just have so much going on but we could talk about that forever, but I want to talk about your company and the flowers and what kind of growing you're doing and the cultivars that you're geeking out on and and just like what are you excited about
1: Ooh, I love that okay um. So, our cultivation we we're we're in all greenhouses. Um, We we got an eight thousand amp power drop last year, which was really exciting, and it really allowed us to. We have grow lights throughout the entire facility, and so we're able to have a you know utilize the power of the sun. And but we also have lights in times where it's cloudy or it's winter time, things like that to help with consistency of our production. And so we're—it's it kind of like a sustainable indoor option as our as a grow philosophy. Um, we really pride ourselves on our quality; it's super duper important to us. Um, and our strain selection is also super duper important to us. And it's this constant flow. Of strains that we get in, and we trial them, and based on you know the the look of it, the, the nose, the smell of it, the bud structure, and then how it tests THC and CBD levels, um, it's how we kind of decide whether or not to throw it into full production. Um,
0: what are some of your favorites? I eat-
1: I get I get asked that a lot, and honestly, I like the variety. I love the variety. We try to grow things that have a purple tinge to it, that are you know especially crystally, that are kind of like knockouts. You know, ten across ten on all charts. We I really like the Oreos right now. That was wonderful. We got that cut from um, Radio Ridge.
0: Super great. I really like the Gushman. Ooh. That one's really exciting. The Oreo. What's the genetic cross on that? I don't mean to put you on the spot it's because I know sometimes I have to. I I, <laughs> I, I forget different <laughs> things and I'm like, what did I, I know? I wrote that down. <laughs> it's okay.
1: I know it's secret weapon. Yeah, cookies and cream and secret weapon.
0: Oh, right on.
1: Mhm. It's super pretty. It's, like, out of control pretty, especially when it's on the vine. It just, it, it looks, it's, like, light blue. It's oh, wow. so green and purple. Like, it's just, it's super, it's super pretty. Um, the Gushmans are awesome because it's Gushers crossed with Gushmans. And so, Gush, our Gushers before that didn't really have too high of THC. And, you know, that that will not fly in the dispensary world. Mm-hmm. So, we're constantly looking for varieties that have, that are crossed with the higher THC streams. We've had a lot of success with
0: those. Um, Do you think that, because you know, I know, like consumers are are really obsessed with THC percentages, and as you and I both know, that's not the end all be all. Are you seeing like people that are starting to get more invested in interesting terpene profiles at all? I'm I'm hoping that that's it starts to change towards that because that really is like. You know, I I think it's more impactful than THC percentages.
1: You know, I don't know. It's hard for me to tell. I see a lot more, mostly just on Instagram, of people being like, THC percentages don't matter, and let me tell you why. And so I see a lot more people speaking out about it, Mm -hmm. Um, but I do not see any, like... For our premium brand Paradiso, you know like we cannot put anything that's under 20% in that brand isn't that you, wild it, i don't i don't see any change with the buyers or what they will take on
0: see that that's that's the thing that always always perplexed me because it's like i'll i used to talk about this a lot and especially this is going to sound totally sexist but especially to guys I was like listen dude you know I can have something that's like 25% and it might not feel nearly as strong as a 13% with a really interesting terpene profile
1: exactly but I think it goes hand in hand with like the affordability of products and you know, a lot of us who understand this about about flour, like, we've had access to a lot of different types of flour and gotten to smoke it. And so we've, we've come to not only understand it as a concept, but understand it in our body. Yeah. But when you go into a dispensary and, you know, there's not that much and you're spending minimum $30 on an eighth, you know, yeah. like, you're not like, oh, let me stock up on five flavors and like let <laughs> me and try it out you know unless you have that that ability to really sample and somehow the regulations encourage that in a way which is really difficult to do with track and trace and that met- which is metric and- but unless you have that like variety and that excess um, you don't really get to like see that and there's something fundamentally I think with humans where it's like you
0: know they they don't believe it. Yeah. Yeah, I can totally see that. It is like as you're saying that as I was kind of reflecting on like there's a certain privilege with having access to all the different flowers because I remember when I got my medical card um when I was when I was going through cancer treatment and it was like you weren't necessarily like that was when oh, I'm going to totally date myself but that's when girl scout cookie was like the top cultivar that was going for like you know most most eights were going for somewhere around 55 and that one was going for 60 and above and so I was kind of like yeah I'm gonna just stick to my blue dream <laughs> you know mm-hmm. as a consumer and then, and then working at a dispensary you're like oh I get to try everything and then I get a really good idea of what I want and I really wish that We could. I'm hoping that the structure of of cannabis sales and what's legal and what's not changes because when we were able to have sampling, um, it really did change. We had more savvy consumers. We had people that could try. You know, trying something now is is for some people can be you know a financial hardship. And, um, cause you don't want to, the most disappointing thing is spending a lot of money on a product and then realizing that you don't really, it's not really for you, you know? So I hope we were able yeah. to do some more around that. Um, total, totally unrelated, but I saw in your bio that your background is in scientific illustration. <laughs> and I just think like, that's really this cool. Is true. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, I,
1: um, uh, my undergrad is in illustration and communication design, which, and then I took advantage of, I was already out in California, and I have a graduate program in scientific illustration in uh, CSUMB. And I was like, I'm going to do this, you know? And so I particularly like drawing plants. Uh And it has the botanical illustration has this international community of a lot of them. It is heavily women, heavily weighted women. I would say 80 to 90 percent are women involved in this community. And it's just a bunch of amazing people who are kind of plant nerds who really also art nerds Uh and love botanical gardens. Uh And it's just painting. You know, the goal of it is to kind of paint. To a scientific truth of this particular species or variety of plant, but also have a sense of aliveness with it. So it's not it's not dead, but it has the you know the personality of that plant alive in the drawing. And I think it's the coolest thing in the world. And if I was not running this cannabis company, that's what I would be doing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and I know that you know. Most of us who do work in cannabis, we don't have a lot of free time to to noodle on other things. But do you do you ever do any illustrations of some of the flowers that you're growing?
1: No, no, I definitely have no free time. <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. It's on the contrary. I I, I want to invite the the local like California community of botanical illustrators to draw and have like a more structured thing where it's it's actually not me, I'm just
0: coordinating it. That Um, would be But I also haven't had time to do that yet either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had um I had Charlie from Goldleaf on last year and I was looking at some of um the botanical illustrations that he has available on his website. And those are really beautiful. And another, um, another artist, I don't, I don't have the artist's name, but I, I follow them on Instagram. And I actually uh, bought a set of mugs for a friend uh, that had the illustrations on. It was Life Science Studios. Because she does, like, I don't know if you've checked her out, but she does amazing stuff on mushrooms. Like, both medicinal, Ooh. culinary, and, and psychedelic mushrooms and they're really really cool. I got a, I got a set of mugs for a friend of mine just as a as a just because gift because she she totally nerds out on that stuff too and I was I just I love I love seeing the illustrations and just like how much they bring to life like you were saying, you know, the plants and and it's just I I'm hoping to see more stuff like that. Like when I when I first started working in cannabis, I was you know, looking for things from my house, and I found these um, old uh, botanical plates. They were from like a uh, they were from a botany book that was a, a German botany book, and so it had like the families of plants, and cannabis was in there. And so I I got a couple of those plates, and I had them framed for the house. And I thought, you know, how how wonderful would it be? And I know there are more people who are getting into it, but you know, just the as there's there's the aspect of like the feel and the practical usage of cannabis but then there's just the beauty of it and and how we're seeing it incorporated more into like art and design like we had our um our berkeley store i went there to go visit some of my colleagues and i went into the bathroom and there's this wallpaper that if you you had to like look at it for a second to realize what it was but it's all these koalas lounging in what looks like, you know, a cannabis plant and they have like then you look closer and you're like, does that koala have a bong? <laughs> oh my
1: god, that's so
0: cute. It's super cute and it's like, you know, it's becoming more more sophisticated and just interesting and I just I love the fact that we're seeing, you know, a cannabis design coming into the everyday and and not just you know and mind you I have no problem with this but not just like when I first moved to the city and it was like hemp necklaces and pot t-shirts it's like elevated like design
1: the pot leaf uh nipple pasties
0: yeah that
1: was like very popular in like 2012 yeah
0: <laughs> that was and and, and and you know the big like pot leaf acrylic earrings and stuff it's like that's all cool but like you know seeing like more subtle elevated design I'm really really enjoying a lot mm-hmm. I
1: think um the company's called Dissell Inspire, but they have, like, beautiful lingerie. Oh, yeah. Coffee. Yeah. Yeah. It's really – I'm right there with you. I like seeing it incorporated, and, and that's part of the normalization and having it be a little bit more elevated and elegant and um, not so much this, like, almost ostracized uh, cult group of people who smoke pot, but it's like, oh. Well, yeah. Everyone does, kind of. And it can be nice and classy and enjoy yeah. these
0: wonderful things. I really like that. And and I, I do understand, like, you know, the, the older, like, stoner aesthetic. I understand, like, the importance of it, especially because a lot of that was coming up in a time where, you know, people were looking to identify with people who were having similar interests in them. Because I remember, like, back in the day, you know, I've, you know, I've been... I've been smoking cannabis since, you know, my teens uh, off and on through the years, you know, sometimes some, some years were, were more so than others. But as an adult in San Francisco, even going to parties before I worked in cannabis and before, you know, we were having these larger conversations about cannabis, you know, having my, having my one hitter in my dugout or a joint and there would just be like the small group of us off to (laughs) to the side. Smoking, and everybody else would be having their cocktails, and, and now like a lot of those those people who would be nursing their cocktails are coming up to me and being like, "Hey, can we talk about cannabis?" I feel, you know, comfortable to to actually start investigating this and seeing if it works for me. And so it's it's really interesting to see just how it's evolving and becoming more accepted, and even you know just more mainstream and and. I dare to say, grown up. I really like that. Mm -hmm. Although now these days, instead of, you know, yeah, instead of, you know, hiding in the corner, smoking with a couple of people now, it's like, now you're like, oh, yeah, well, let's smoke. But, you know, do do we have to talk about work right now? (laughs) (laughs) I'm off the clock. This is true. Oh, I feel that. Well, what other things do you want to talk about? Because I we, just, I, I really, you know, I love what you're doing with your company. Um, I, I don't know if we did we, we mentioned that you're in the the Monterey Bay area. What are what are some mm-hmm. of the things that you're excited about in the future? What are some things you'd like to change, or anything else that you that you want to talk about that you want our listeners to hear?
1: Ooh, open opening the floor. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, what do I want to talk about? Um, I feel like every, I think it's important to, what I'm excited about, what I'm getting involved with right now is it's called the Success Center, and it's out of the bay.
0: Oh, Miss Angela. I love her. Yep.
1: Yep. And I'm, I, I'm just actually really excited about it. And I think one of the coolest things about our company is that like, it's still run by like, me and my two childhood friends. And like, this is possible. I don't have a background in business. You know, I, my parents did not give me money to start this company. Like, you can make this happen. And I think sharing that story and being really open to like, okay, yes, yeah, and theory, you can make it happen. But what exactly like like what did you do like how do you file payroll like how do you do this how do you incorporate this? like what do these mean like being available to answer very specific questions and to really help people understand what all the aspects are in this industry Mm -hmm. um one of the things Beyond um, site visits that we're doing at the Success Center, is we're doing um, presentations about like art direction and um, and branding and how there's you, there's a lot of labeling issues <laughs> in this um, industry and and so there's a lot of need for like graphic designers and, and things like that and you since you, you don't have access to regular advertising, you have to be very creative on you know what kind of assets are you making and how is it being delivered to a customer? Um, is it for digital? Is it for print? What it, you know, is it a piece of, I don't know, a keychain that you're making, you know, what are these things that have like a, a resonating impact with consumers um, and that helps, you know, and so I'm, I'm just excited about that part of it. Yeah. I really, really am.
0: Yeah, I I I think it's 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 wonderful that you're you're doing work to support other people creating sustainable businesses. And I love I love what Success Centers is doing because I feel like their work they're not only helping place people in positions in the industry, but they're helping people create businesses and and one of the biggest things I think especially around social justice is being able to help people create generational wealth for their families.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Um, Yeah, the other thing we're trying to do is be part of the supply chain for equity brands. Nice. And, yeah, and, you know, like, I've been part of this industry for enough time to know that nothing is going to go as planned. Mm -hmm. And so being able to be a supplier with that in mind and knowing that, you know, they're not necessarily the most well-funded and like this industry is, you know, dispensaries won't pay, you know, it'll be a little bit of a challenge. It will take a little longer to do the sales, things like that. And just having that flexibility built into your approach of, you know, and it not being necessarily the end goal is like for you to pay your invoice on time. But the end goal is that you're actually helping people create brands. Right. And there's been so much I think that's happened to me in my life that has been, you know, whether it's someone like spotting me a few pounds or it's someone. I did one of my first grows. I did a mural for them and they gave me 30 (laughs) plants. And so things like that where like there's been these wonderful things that, you know, other people in this industry have really helped me get to the place where I am and so I really want to I want to keep that flow going.
0: Yeah, yeah I like that. I, I, I look at it in many ways, you know, a lot of times especially like when we're talking about social justice and equity you hear people talking about allyship but um, I like to be an accomplice mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, uh, ally- exactly. That's
1: al- a great way to put it. I love
0: that. Yeah, because you know, <laughs> allyship is all well and good, but it can be like largely performative. But if you're an accomplice, you're like getting in there, you know, and and really and really helping people with like your tools and actions to make things happen. And that's I I hope that we see more of that, not only on the equity side, but also on the compassion side, because we've you know we've done a lot of work to make it possible to be able to give free cannabis to people who really need it and now we you know there are some great programs that are that are starting up in the state you know we have like you know Deer cannabis um and there are some others that are out there but we need more and that's you know because whenever I look at it I'm like yeah you know you're not competing with one another it's all hands on deck to make sure that you know People are able to work in the industry, have successful businesses in the industry if they're sick and they're, you know, in need because of income that they are able to to get what they want because the reason that we're all able to do what we're doing today is because we did it. The foundations are the backs of those patients. And and so I think like, you know, allyship is all well and good, but being an accomplice and really getting in there side by side with people helping, you know, we, we, we can all come up together, I think is a, is a beautiful thing. And we can change the way, you know, other industries do business too, with, you know, modeling what we should be doing as, as business owners and members of a uh, industry and movement. Cause we can never forget that it's a movement that got us here. Um, and it still is, is continuing because if we don't have the movement we're going to stagnate and it's going to be really hard for businesses to survive because you know when we're looking at policy at a state and especially a federal level I mean that's it's definitely not being looked at as something for you know business owners as individuals but what's in it for them Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's my speech yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I, it's, I'm right there with you. I think it, it's, it goes back to creating an industry that we're all proud of, yeah. you know, and it, there's so much opportunity in this industry to really shape it. And, you know, part of shaping is, fight, you know, fighting against the what is not right with the industry. And it's also making sure that when you're fighting against, you're also bringing what you want to change with it right into the conversation and really supporting
0: it and yeah. um yeah and i think that yeah, you're know, on the same page yeah and we have so many people who are active in in the smaller companies and now it's now it's the time like the one i you know like sometimes people get nervous about the larger companies and the msos but it's an opportunity to engage them and to have them be able to use their influence to create change for good as well. Mm-hmm. I, I love guilting big companies into doing good things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, most of the time they just need a model. You they know, do. It's, 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 it's often very abstract for like how to do what you're asking them of. And I think it's just like, here, this is very specific. Here's a model and this is why it's beneficial.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, and and I I feel like we're we're definitely seeing a lot of uh, we're seeing a lot of bigger companies that are really understanding like the gravitas of like their footprint, um, and are moving to do more things around that. Especially, I'm I'm hoping like there are some definite good pli- players in the equity scene, but we also have to, um, really illuminate those who not illuminate but point out those who have been taking advantage of equity players too because we have that was one of the things like I I was um, co-chair of the San Francisco Legalization Task Force for three years and when we were that was when we were first talking about what an equity program would look like and it was really Mm -hmm. there are a lot of loopholes that we still need to close around equity to make sure that the people that we've created these programs for to benefit get to benefit and that other people aren't benefiting off of it or using predatory practices to actually put these equity operators in greater harm than elevating them and helping them create a sustainable business that does create generational wealth for their families especially you know we look at you know the, the language that we had to use with you know calling it you know benefiting people who are from areas that are impacted on the war on drugs well, that's all very well and good, but that language can also be turned so that it's not necessarily helping the people that we were hoping it would impact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can hear your smile from here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I
1: think the way that the equity laws turned out in San Francisco and Oakland, you know, it there was a lot that. And especially in Oakland, it's been a few years, right? And yeah. it's like, there's a lot that can be desired. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot that can be learned by that framework.
0: And yeah. And I really like, you know, I really have to hand it to the people who have been working hard to try to change this and, and really, you know, even the work that they're doing on a national level, I know, you know, it, it, it can't be done all at once. And, um, and they're really working to like poke holes in what's, what's not necessarily going the way we wanted it to. It is a work in progress, so I appreciate and and respect all the work that they're putting towards it, and I wish we could have started out on the right foot to begin with. That would have been something. This is true. Yeah, that would have been cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in a perfect world, right? Well, mm-hmm. it, what... It, as we as we close out our session today, what what would you like to leave? What thoughts would you like to leave for our listeners? Um, I think that even though
1: things, you know, that didn't work out, legalization didn't work out. You know, I think that the ultimate truth of it is that there is people are motivated. To make this work in a larger way. And yeah. I think ultimately, people, what I do see is that people, they do want successful companies. They do want diversity. They do want those who have, you know, been impacted by the war on drugs to, and are, were previously acting as part of the cannabis um, market. You know, like people do want change to happen. And it's discouraging, but. Um, when you don't necessarily feel that way but the truth and is that you just you gotta keep going you gotta keep going towards the change yeah um, I guess that's what I don't know that's not a great way to end it but I <laughs> no. I it sounded think
0: it's... like it was gonna be <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> no I think it's it's a message of hope it's like we, we all do want really good things and and you know, if we work together and we communicate and we push for reforms on, you know, what's already been set out, I think we do have a chance. We just have to not be discouraged and keep our eye on the prize. So I, I think, I think it's a, I think it's a beautiful message. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank
1: you. Yeah said
0: it better than i could oh i I, i'm i'm the queen of paraphrasing so there's that that's why i have a podcast (laughs) (laughs) and for people to be able to follow you on social media or reach out and contact you um how would they do that oh
1: two ways you can follow us on social media um it's at Paradiso.garden. Um, or you can go to paradigmalgardens.com and contact contact us there.
0: Wonderful, and for those of you listening in today, remember, planted is twice a month now. We've been doing it for a few months, um, and if you want to follow us on social media, on Twitter and IG, we are Planted with Sarah. We are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook and our website is plantedwithsarah.com. And of course, you can listen to us and all the other amazing podcasts on our parent network, Radio Misfits Network. Um, Christina, thank you so much for being here with me today. It's wonderful to be talking to somebody who's, you know, who's been in it for a while, is seeing the change. And of course, it's always a pleasure to talk to another woman in the industry who's making it happen. So please come back anytime, seriously.
1: Oh my God, you're so sweet. Thank you for having me. This is um, above and beyond what I expected. It was a great conversation.
0: Oh, I'm so glad I had so much fun talking with you. And for those of you out there, uh, tune in. We'll be back here 15 days from now. <laughs> Let's check in for our next episode. <laughs> and until we meet again, stay safe. It's a crazy world out there, so we all we have is each other, so be good to each other. And until next time, stay curious. Take care.